at least, your Bible is open. You're sitting at home before work one morning, the Bible open before you, a cup of coffee next to you, and you are staring at a page of Scripture, and nothing seems to be happening. You try to pray, but you're looking at the ceiling, and nothing's happening. Your mind is wandering. So you go to church on Sunday. You go through all the motions. You stand up when you're supposed to stand up. You sit down when you're supposed to sit down. But but God seems so very distant. God seems, if you're honest, he seems so very absent. And you wonder, what am I doing wrong? Very often, worship can seem futile, and it can seem like God is so distant. We're going to look at a psalm from the Psalter. It's the 84th Psalm. This was the hymn book of ancient Israel. This is what they sang in the temple, what they sang in the synagogue. This is the prayer of the people. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you, Selah. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have their hearts set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Selah. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. For better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from him whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. What do we see here? What we see here in this psalm of worship is that worship is all about longing. Worship is about longing for something, yearning for it, longing for God. Verse 2, my soul yearns, even faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. What is it to have longing? To long for something is to experience a desire for something that you don't yet fully experience. It's to, to hunger. Uh, to hunger is not to have food, but to want it tremendously. To thirst doesn't mean you have water. To thirst is to lack water. Water is absent. It doesn't seem to be there. And you crave it. You seek it out. You pine after it even. And to yearn for God, to have a heart that faints for his presence, doesn't mean that you have this intense emotional experience of God in worship. Rather, it means that you have this emotional experience of God's relative absence. 
It's what St. Paul said when he said, now we see through a glass darkly. Now we know God in part. He's saying we barely know him. We know him a little bit. Uh, It's like God is a, a small cup of water in our worship experience when the true God is the vast infinite ocean. We experience his relative absence in worship, in private worship, in public worship, but worship is about longing. You want to know him fully. You want to see him clearly. You you want to experience his presence in a way that you don't right now. That is the heart of worship, to enter into the longing for God. Worship is about longing. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. So where are you with God? Do your heart and your flesh cry out for God? Are you hungry for him? Do you miss him? Are you thirsty for him? Does your soul ache for him? You know what it's like to long for someone. You know what it's like when you fall in love with someone, when you fall really, really badly for someone, and and you think about them all the time. Maybe they're away, they're not here, but you wonder what they're doing. You wonder whether they're thinking about you. You you picture them and, and you sigh or you smile. They make you feel lighter than air. You want to spend all your time with them. Your friends can barely get a chance to get on your schedule. If he or she calls you, you drop everything and you take the call. Your shoulders cinch up lightly when you grab a call. You hold the phone with both hands as you're leaning into it. And when you hear their voice, a a smile breaks out across your face. You long to be close to them. You long to see them. You long to feel their warm hands in yours. You want more of them than you presently have. Uh, You feel as though you could faint. You get lightheaded, so great is your desire for their presence. That's the language that the psalmist is is using here. Uh, That's uh, the language that we see here. And he's talking, it's almost as if he's talking about swooning inside. He says, my soul yearns, even faints. For the courts of the Lord. His soul is fainting. So great is his longing for God. Because worship is about longing. Longing for a closeness that you don't currently feel you have. And worship, friends, it should increase your longing. It seems counterintuitive, I know. but, But worship of God at its best is sort of like eating a Pringle. Let's say uh, you might be feeling just the faintest tinge of hunger right now. And then... I were to crack open a can or a, a tube, if you will, of barbecue-flavored Pringles, and I call the deacons forward, and I, I give them the, the tube of Pringles, and I instruct them to go and pass out to each of you right now exactly one Pringle for every single person, and I want you to, to hold it in your hand, and then at the, when everybody's got their one Pringle, I want all of you to put it in your mouth and feel that saltiness, and that barbecue spices, a little bit of garlic, some paprika in there, and, and the, the, the starchiness of the potato seems to melt in your mouth, and, and that smell goes up the back of your throat into your nose, and you're experiencing a taste of a Pringle. And now I want to ask all of you one question. Has your one Pringle made you less hungry? No. It's actually made you more hungry. That taste 
taste of the Pringle has made your appetite for the true experience of a can of Pringles to actually increase. Friends, that's what worship is like. Worship is like a Pringle. It it can grow your longing for something more. It doesn't satiate your hunger. It grows your hunger. You're saying, God, I want to know you. I want to see that you're real. I want to be closer to you. I want to experience your goodness here in the land of the living. You know, we long even more to feast upon that which we can only now taste. That sets us up to consider where a life of worship, a life of longing is leading. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Worship is about longing. Worship is also about having a heart set on pilgrimage. Verse 5, blessed are those whose strength is in you, Lord, who have their hearts set on pilgrimage. Pilgrimage was to travel. Let's say you're in, in Beersheba, down in the Negev Desert. You travel many days' journey over land through the desert to reach Jerusalem in order to present your offerings at the temple of the Lord that you might meet with God. And it wasn't just about the destination. It was also about the journey itself, about the seeking, about the pursuit of God. As pilgrims seeking God, the psalmist writes, their pursuit begins where life before had been death. It's that reference in verse 6 as they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. Uh, Baca was a type of tree that thrived in the desert, and yet it's also the Hebrew term Baca for weeping. And he's saying as they pass through the valley of weeping, that double entendre, they make it a place of springs because their heart is set on pilgrimage. They know their destination. They're living in anticipation, not of the the presence of God they feel now, but the presence of God they will experience one day in this desert, in this dry soil. Life is about seeking God and a journey. This psalm is not just about the pilgrimage for to the Hebrews, this life itself was a life spent on pilgrimage to see God. This was the great longing of Israel, uh, people whose entire lives were on a pilgrimage, specifically a pilgrimage to see the face of God. It's what Moses had experienced in Exodus 33 when when God spoke to Moses. He wanted to see the face of God, and, and God spoke to Moses and said, Moses, no one can look on my face in this life and live. And yet that longing grew among the people of Israel. And in Numbers 8, God gives to the sons of Aaron, to the priests, the authority to speak the name of the Lord over the children of Israel. In Numbers 6, the authority to speak his presence and his blessing upon them. And he speaks to them in that benediction and says, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his... A face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you shalom, give you peace. And verse 7 of, of Psalm 84, they're on a pilgrimage to appear before God. And verse 9, their hope is that he would look with favor upon us, turn his face toward us that we would see him. First Chronicles 16, seek the Lord in his strength, seek his face continually. 
Psalm 4, lift up your countenance upon us, O Lord, the psalmist prays. Indeed, in the Bible, to pray is to seek the face of God. Psalm 31, may your face, make your face to shine upon us, your servant. O Lord, save me in your loving kindness. This is a pilgrimage to see the face of God. It's not that we have this super ecstatic intimacy with God here and now. That can happen, but it is rare. It's what Puritans referred to as a visitation. But we're on pilgrimage. Jesus says, the pure in heart are blessed for they shall one day see God. Paul says, one day we'll see God clearly. Now it's a glass darkly. Because we're on pilgrimage. We're on a journey and seeing God is the destination Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, calls those followers of Jesus, he says, we are aliens and strangers in this life. We are sojourners in this world. This life is a pilgrimage. The author of the letter to the Hebrews in Hebrews 11 describes those who desire a better country that is a heavenly one. They're on their way. Hebrews 13, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Friends, worship is about longing, longing for God precisely because he seems relatively absent in this life, but longing for him with a heart set on pilgrimage, a heart seeking the face of God. It's not a desire to get some blessing from God. Uh, The blessing is God himself to appear before God, he says, to cry out for God, to hunger for him, to thirst for him, to swoon and faint in longing for him. That's worship. It's all about longing. Worship is about longing, and that's because our purpose lies in God. It's an aesthetic thing. Aesthetics is the study of beauty, and we as human beings are hardwired to seek out beauty. You know, what does the psalmist long so greatly? Why does he long so greatly for God? He says it in verse 1. It's not because there's some moral imperative to seek God, though there is, but this isn't an ethical thing for the psalmist. It's not because he has an obligation to long for God, and it's not a utilitarian thing either. It's not because he he needs God to do something for him, because that other thing for him would probably be his real God. No, it's something completely different, a different kind of language here. He uses this language of beauty, this language of aesthetics. Look at verse 1, how love Lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. Lovely, because God is there. Beautiful, pleasing, satisfying, delightful, as if the sheer beauty of God is compelling the psalmist to look to God, to hunger or faint or yearn for God, because we were made for him, our creator, to find our satisfaction in him, to find our identity and meaning and purpose and completion in the one for whom we were made. That draw, that pull, that longing is written in the fabric of creation. You see it as moths go around and around a lamppost at night, always drawn to that bright light, drawn to it, pulled to it. Our souls in that way long for God, long for meaning, for purpose, for for the beauty of the cosmos and the beauty of the one behind it. You say, Greg, we aren't insects. No, we're not, but we are creatures. 
We were made by a God of beauty out of the overflow of his beauty and goodness. And we were hardwired, therefore, to seek beauty. And yes, in this fallen world, broken and distant from God, we chase after it, looking for it in all the wrong places, seeking out lesser beauties that that are never enough. We always need more because we long for ultimate beauty, infinite beauty. It's the same with us humans. Just like insects, we're hardwired for it, you know, if you've ever been to Nicaragua, there's a village called Catarina up in the mountains of, of Nicaragua, south of, of Managua. And as you travel along the road through these mountains, there's a town you come to called Catarina. And if you hang a left and go into the village of Catarina, it's, you know, paver stones on the ground, little shop stalls leaning out into this narrow street, selling everything imaginable, selling plants and selling flowers and selling figurines and pottery and woodwork and all sorts of stuff all the way through the back of this village. And then you go back behind the church and and the road turns to the left, and you kind of sense that you're probably going uphill. You've probably been going uphill a long time. The air may be getting a little bit thinner, and as you get to the top of the hill, this plaza opens up, and there's stalls all around it with various you know, local Indians from the various villages selling their wares, and as you go and push beyond uh, to the far side of that plaza, there are two restaurants and a narrow passage between them, and as you walk between that passage, between the those two restaurants getting squeezed in from the walls of either place on either side, getting darker and compressed, and then you get to the other side, and what opens up before you is this massive vista. As before you, the ground drops off nearly straight down, and miles and miles across, you are looking down into the lip over the lip of a volcano, down thousands of feet to a crater lake below you. And in the distance beyond, you can see the expanse of, of Lake, uh, uh, lake Nicaragua, or Cochabalca, as the locals call it, before you. And as you see this, there are all sorts of locals, uh, people from all over the country, And they're just sitting there on the edge of this crater lake, looking down into this volcano and across the lake beneath them. And they're just gazing at it. They're not doing anything. They're not talking. They're not negotiating business deals. Whole families just seated there, looking at this thing of tremendous beauty, gazing at it. Why are they there? Because there was something that was not only beautiful, but vast in its beauty. Friends, that's what we were made for. That's, that's what, what God is. Infinite, vast, powerful, overwhelming beauty and goodness. Are you soaking it in? It's an aesthetic thing. Are you gazing at the beauty of God as he presents himself to us in Scripture? Is your heart moved by the thought of God? Are you meditating on the promises of God? Are you putting your phone down long enough to sit before him and take in the view you were made for this friends it's an aesthetic thing you were made to gaze at his beauty verse 10 better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere i would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my god than to live among the tents of the wicked 
Friends, that's the soul's rest. That's balm for the weary traveler to find your satisfaction in him. That is the soul's quest for God. St. Augustine prayed back in the 4th century, You have created us for Yourself, O Lord, and our hearts find no rest until they find their rest in You. Longing for beauty. It's an aesthetic thing. We were made for God. That's because God is supreme. We are instruments. So often we church people get it all wrong. We think of God as this being that we have to convince to do things, to fix things for us. He's the one we turn to when things are broken or bad. And we act like God is an instrument. And when, when in fact, God tells us just the opposite. It's, it's, it's something that St. Augustine discussed, how, how everything ultimately is either an instrument or an end. Uh, an end is, is a reason in its own right. An instrument is something that has a purpose beyond itself. An instrument was created to, to do something, some purpose bigger than itself. For example, a hairdryer. Is it an instrument or is it an end? Well, a hairdryer is, is an instrument. What's it for? It was created to do something. To do what? To, to dry hair. That's why some clever soul labeled it a, a named it a, a hair dryer. Uh, a pencil is, is not an end. It is an instrument. Why? Because a pencil was created with a purpose bigger than itself in order to write and communicate. A toaster oven is an instrument because it was created uh, with a purpose beyond itself to toast things, uh, make them warm. Everything, Augustine said, is either an instrument or an end, and as Augustine pointed out, everything ultimately has a purpose beyond itself. What about human beings? Are we instruments or are we ends? Well, you have to be careful here because we human beings are not to view other human beings as instruments. That would disrespect the image of God in them. That would treat them as, as an object or a utensil that we're supposed to use to get our agenda done. We're not to view human beings that way, but, but from God's perspective, were human beings created? Yes, they were created. Were they created with a purpose beyond themselves? Yes. Therefore, what are we human beings? We are instruments. We have a purpose. We are not ultimate. God is ultimate. We have a purpose beyond ourselves, that purpose beyond ourselves, to bask in the beauty of the God who made us in his own image to enjoy and delight in him and to let the overflow of that love and goodness and beauty flow into the lives of others in what we call the community of God. To find your life, your joy, your hope, your significance, your worth, not in what you do, but in the God of beauty who loves you, a purpose that lies In God himself, only God is an end in his own right, the one for whom all things were made, that infinite, unknowable force behind the cosmos who we could not know or see or reach out to were it not that he reached into us to communicate to us, to show us his beauty in what he has made, to show us his beauty in the image of God in man, to show us his beauty in the cosmos, and ultimately to show us his beauty in his promises and in his Son, and in his self-giving, self-sacrificial love for us, even when we were his enemies. That's what we were made for, friends. So how are you doing? You know, worship is both private worship and public, private in your home and your family, whatever that looks like for you, finding some way to gaze upon the beauty of God, to meditate on his word, to seek him, to seek his face. And it is corporate, gathered together on Sunday morning as, as the people of God before, before his throne. 
We're made to seek him out, to enter into this life of pilgrimage, seeking after the beauty of God's face. Is that the priority of your life? Are you letting his beauty shape you and define you? Are you letting that longing for him grow every day inside of you to critique you and comfort you and inspire you? Have you carved out time in your day and in your week when you can quiet yourself before him, where you can talk to him, where you can meditate on who he is and who you are to him? Tim Keller describes this life of worship private as well as public worship uh, in a sailing metaphor. He says you're either sailing or you're rowing or you're drifting or you're sinking. When you're sailing through a life of worship, uh, you know, the wind is in your sails and you're moving and it doesn't really require a whole lot from you. It, It seems easy. You pray and you believe God's hearing you and you open up his word and it's like he's speaking directly to you and you sit in a cern and like God's zeroing in right on your soul saying, I'm here, I'm here for you. I'm your Lord, I'm your king, I'm your redeemer, I'm your rescuer. And it's so personal and it's pulling you and you're, you're growing in Christ and it all comes with seemingly so little effort. That's what it's like when you're sailing. But very often there's no wind in your sails. And the life of worship is a lot of work. It's a lot of staring at a book, wondering what it has to do with your life, praying, but it, it's you're having to strain to make yourself pray. Your prayers are, are, are a lot of work. It's a, it just requires obedience and discipline because, because nothing is coming easily. You're, you're, you're coming to church, but you're having to make yourself come to church, but you're doing it consistently. That's rowing. You're still moving forward. You're still living your life on pilgrimage. You're still on your way to see the face of God, but it's not easy. It's work. And sometimes we're tempted to give up and just stop coming to church and stop trying to meditate on the promises of God and his word and Christ and, and, and to stop trying to pray and to stop trying to seek his face and we get off pilgrimage and at that point our lives are drifting, our worship is drifting and, and if we don't actually start rowing again very often our souls will begin to sink. Friends, how are you doing? Are you seeking your purpose in your God? Is he your trajectory? Is he your destiny? Is he your love? How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty? My soul yearns for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out to the living God. Worship is all about longing, and that's because our purpose lies in God. So how can we seek God's face when I'm a big sinner and we're all broken and damaged? Friends, the psalm says here, the promise of God that he will help you see if you seek his face. Here we see the embrace of grace. For even though God is ultimate and we are instruments, nevertheless, the psalmist calls God our sun and our shield. As our sun, he is the one who pierces the darkness of this fallen world, the darkness of our own souls. He is the one who graciously enables us to see the truth, to see him. He he invades our heart with faith so that we might claim his promises, our very own. He's the one who brings life and light. He's the one who brings warmth to dispel the coldness of the night. Indeed, if you have a hunger for God, it may suggest that you've already encountered him. You've already had that taste. The God of the Bible is our sun, but he is also our shield. 
And what that means is that God will protect us from those in whom or with whom we have conflict. Surely, 3,000 years ago, that meant human opponents who stalked the land, foreign enemies whose armies might be fierce and might come up against us. It meant the assassin, the poisoner. It meant all of those who, who would be jealous of us and resent us and try to beat us down and tell us we are worthless and that we don't matter and who would treat us unjustly. All of those who would take advantage of us and make it so difficult for us to actually seek God and live a life that's pleasing to him and take care of our families. Friends, the Bible tells us that we have opponents in this life and God is our shield, a shield about us to defend us from our foes. And yet there is something more here because the Bible tells us that our ultimate conflict is not with the people who are fallen like us, but more fundamentally a conflict that all of us have with our Creator. You see, we were created to walk with God in a garden, close, intimate, naked, but feeling no shame, known and knowing God, walking with him and accepted by him. But our first parents, the Bible tells us, those first humans turned their back on God. They turned their their, their back and, and declared their independence from God. And the result of that was death, physical death and spiritual death and separation from God and this great vast gulf that makes God seem very distant because he is because of our sin. And the consequences of that conflict between humanity and God would mean eternal judgment, being forsaken by God, being left to our own devices and handed exactly what we wanted, which was independence, ultimately stepping into eternity, alone, without God, and without beauty, which comes from God. And when God claimed us as his people, when he included you among his people, when he brought you to faith in his son Jesus, he was also taking on your debt because he at that point became a shield about you. And as a shield about you, he was therefore determined to face the consequences of that conflict to fight your battles for you as your shield. And when the judgment of God would come against you on account of your sin and my sin, when the fierceness of his justice would come against me because I have not been just, God himself would be the shield about us, to shield us against the coming judgment your shield against his own just sentence because he loves you and is your shield. That shield is what sent Jesus to the cross, that Jesus, our shield, might absorb the judgment due for my sin and for yours, to absorb blow after blow all of the wrath of God as your shield about you, to take the full and total impact so that you can be his so that you can be a pilgrim on a journey to one day see the face of God, longing for a God whose presence you have so far only tasted, but whose taste serves to grow your hunger. Because you have a shield, friends. And because of that shield, if you were a Christian, you will never face the wrath of God. Because there is no double jeopardy with God. Your debt has been paid and paid in full and paid by God himself because of his love and beauty. Friends, that journey to see the face of God will one day succeed. The Bible says that a day is coming 
when you, if you have Jesus, when you will see him. It's what theologians call the beatific vision. And theologians through the years have differed over the exact meaning of the Apostle John's words in his first uh, letter, first chapter, when first John, he, he writes and says that when Jesus returns, sorry, not the first chapter, but when Jesus returns, that we will see Jesus, we will be like him. He says, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. I think what John is getting at here is the mechanism of our coming transformation because our bodies grow weak. Our souls grow weak in seeking the face of God. We spend a lot of years rowing, sometimes drifting, only occasionally sailing. And yet that pilgrimage reaches its destination. Jesus uh, 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 says that, that this current phase of our journey will draw to a close and we're going to be transformed we're going to be freed and made complete and whole and there will be no more half-hearted worship and no more sitting with your bible open wondering what it's about our our minds won't be wandering elsewhere no more mixed motives no more sin no more suffering no more death what is it that's going to transform us and make us like jesus friends it was the hope of israel all along we shall be like him Why? Because we shall see Jesus as he is. You will see the face of your God in the face of Jesus Christ. And on that day, in that beatific vision, you shall see God. And that sight of God is the very mechanism through which the radiance of his glory will shine outward to irradiate us and change us and transform us and make us whole and complete and like Jesus. Friends, when you see his face turn toward you, you are going to see the very face of God. You'll see the face of your Savior smiling upon you, and then you will hunger no more, for then we shall feast. It's a pilgrimage. A couple years ago, we remember the story of of hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees walking to Europe and then walking across the face of the earth in a a pilgrimage to find a place of safety. Their story had been a story of barrel bombs dropped from the sky, of shelling, of explosions and gunfire. The first explosion, they would have all been shocked, but after the 10th or 20th explosion... It was just seeing body parts, but they didn't even flinch. The gunfire, the fear in the night, the pressure to join either a dictatorship you did not support or Islamic extremists that you did not identify with. And so you had to leave. And you remembered taking your few belongings, what you could carry in your knapsack and in in suitcases and, and, and walking hundreds and hundreds of miles to the border with Turkey. We watched as inflatable rafts tried to cross the Aegean to the islands of Greece, many not surviving. We saw the washed-up body of a little boy named Alan Kurdi being carried by a Turkish police officer because he didn't make it. So many losses, and yet they kept trekking through country after country, country after country that did not want them, that was afraid of them that thought that they would mean losing jobs or losing security or losing their culture. We remember the lorries and the trucks 
in which so many died of suffocation and their desire to reach a land that would take them, a home that would accept them, seeing angry crowds throwing things at them, angry crowds everywhere they went, crowds mocking their wives, mocking their daughters, telling them there was no place for them, the holdups at every border, the angry people everywhere saying, get out of Christian Europe, you're not welcome here, you disgust us, your children disgust us, and your women disgust us. You remember the lack of facilities for hygiene, with no way to do laundry, no way to take a shower, the unexpected cold that they never knew in Syria, the damp chill that goes straight through your windbreaker, the darkness and the rain, the rain and the mud, the mud and the muck, walking, always walking across fields, hated and sneered at, the barbed wire, walking from the Middle East across the face of Europe, officials in Hungary, Opposing them, all of the resentment, the razor wire, the barbed wire, the gunfire, the loss of hope, yet continuing onward in a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage of hope to reach a place of safety where there was no war, where there were no political killings, no disappearances, no hatred, no angry crowds, no jeers, no barbed wire, and then to hear at midnight that the Austrian government would open its border and allow them to pass through by train to Germany. Starving, exhausted, afraid of what hostility they would face, the first train load of refugees pulled into the station in Munich, and as they prepared to disboard, word began spreading through the crowd that there was another, through the, the crowd of refugees, that there was another crowd waiting for them, a crowd of Germans, just like there had been crowds in Budapest with their hateful signs and their shouts to get out of our country. And as they stepped out and saw the crowd gathered in the train station in Munich, this is what they saw. They saw a huge crowd of people who immediately began clapping in applause, cheering them on, saying to them in Arabic, which they had learned just to say it, we love you, you are welcome here, Germany is your home. Women rushing up to give teddy bears to little girls who were terrified and yet smiles would break across their face. People offering dishes of candy, stretching out the hand food, hygiene products, money, throwing cash at the refugees. This crowd that welcomed them, the first friendly crowd they had faced in months of deprivation, of strain, of hardship, of suffering. And here you see the applause and the welcome as they reached their destination. Friends, if you have Jesus, you're going someplace better than Germany. And when you arrive, after a long, hard pilgrimage filled with many sorrows and many losses, there's going to be a crowd gathered there to welcome you home home to a new and better city, a new and better country, the journey behind you, and all of the cheering will be there. And and in the midst of that, that crowd welcoming you home, welcoming you with joy and love and beauty, you will see a face in the crowd that you have never before seen. And yet you will recognize his face immediately. 
because it will be the face of the one you have sought day after day and week after week through your entire journey, the face of the one who carried your cross and all of your shame, the face of the Savior whose face you've sought all of this time. And when you see him, friends, you will be changed because you will see him as he truly is in all of his limitless grace and beauty. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the beauty of Jesus and the beauty of your love. Receive us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.